Amen. Good morning to you. Second Corinthians chapter 10 this morning. There are those who even think some Bible teachers think that when you get to Second Corinthians chapter 10, it's actually the beginning of a different epistle that they later went back and put together. And one of the reasons why they think it's different is because the Apostle Paul's tone changes once you get to chapter 10. Oh, he's still very personal. He's still very vulnerable. His heart is on display. He's wearing it on his sleeve, so to speak. But in the first seven chapters, he's a lot more encouraging, full of grace. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he sort of shifts the discussion uh, pertaining to a business matter about a gift that they were going to give to the saints in Jerusalem. And then when he gets to chapter 10, he sort of gets in their face a little bit. He's a little bit more direct and harsh with them. It might sound strange that anyone would ever question the Apostle Paul. We are so far removed here in 2014 from when he wrote these letters, enough time to vindicate Paul's place in church history, his leadership in writing much of the New Testament. But remember, in that day, not everybody really liked the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine? Not everybody really got him. Some people fought with him or were jealous of him. Even some tried to come in after him and undermine him. I think it's important for us to know that because we have a tendency, we live in a world today that's this way, but we have a tendency to think that time erases truth so to speak. But that was the very real condition in which the Apostle Paul was living. We have a tendency to look sort of nostalgically back to the good old days. And there's a lot of talk today about, you know, getting back to the New Testament church. We got to get back to the New Testament church. And where I understand where they think that, again, some of that is in looking back and thinking that they didn't have some of the problems in that day that we have today. Case in point, the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was a New Testament church, was it not? Absolutely. And yet, what did they have? They had divisions or factions within the church. They were bragging about condoning sexual immorality within the church body. That's what they were known for. It is actually reported among you, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. There were lawsuits that were taking place believer suing believer within a local body could you imagine if we were here gathering this morning and someone on this side was suing someone on this side and everyone knew about it so when we say hey we got to get back to the new testament church we have to remember yeah it was good when we read our bibles when we look at the book of acts it was great sometimes but sometimes it was a struggle Sometimes there was difficulty. Somewhere in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it got even worse in some ways because some of the false teachers had crept in and they began to influence the people there in that body in Corinth. Apparently there were a group of um, self-acclaimed super apostles that had snuck in and they're questioning Paul, leveling attacks on him, questioning his authority, questioning his spirituality, his apostleship, his concern for the Corinthians. A lot of that we saw in the first, second chapters of 2 Corinthians. But now the Apostle Paul feels a need to address some more personal attacks that have been 
leveled against him. And you're not going to believe it if you haven't seen the chapter before, but this is really what was happening. Essentially, this is what they were saying about Paul. This is what the false teachers were saying to try to undermine his authority. They were saying, well, he writes a good letter, but in person, he's pretty weak. He was one person in person and another person when he was away writing a letter. He's a pretty tough guy behind a pen, but in person, he was unimpressive. In fact, they go so far as to say he was physically unimpressive and his speech not so eloquent. Can you believe it? He didn't look so good. Really, he's not that good looking and he wasn't that good of a speaker. I'm encouraged this morning. How about you? <laughs> if he can use the Apostle Paul, the Lord can. Well, I guess he can use me as well then. You don't have to be that good looking and you don't have to be that eloquent. We were my wife and I having dinner with friends from church, I think about a year ago. They're in this room, so I won't make eye contact. But we were having dinner, and their daughter, who my wife has taught in the preschool class, she looked at Becky at one point and said, where does your father go during church? And my wife said, um, my father? She was speaking of me, him. She kind of nudged. <laughs> now, I just have you know, Becky and I are about six weeks apart, okay? <laughs> but I have to blow dry my hair these days because if not, people give me products because they think I'm starting to lose my hair and that kind of thing. I am. But can you believe, I'll get back to it here. Can you believe that there were people seeking to undermine Paul or question him by the way he looked or the way he spoke and that that would have any validity? Actually, I can. And the reason why is because we are people that are subject to judging the container instead of the contents. We do, and that's a hot button topic today and I'm not going to get into politics but you and I both know that that's a big issue do we judge are we judged before they get to know us before we get to know them it's inexcusable in the body of Christ and that's what Paul is trying to explain to them for them see he's been defending his ministry up until now and we look at it as totally a personal thing and I think in part where we see the emotion of Paul, it is. But I also think he's defending himself for their sake. Because the waters have been polluted here in allowing this kind of carnal thinking to take place, that it's okay to judge a book by its cover, so to speak. And that was the influence that they were having on the church body in Paul's absence. When the look becomes more important than the book, we have problems. And sometimes it does. And Paul's going to address that in this passage. So chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now meekness is power under restraint. It's not weakness. You think of a horse. If you've ever ridden a horse before, that's a powerful animal. If it wants to knock you off, it can anytime it wants to. 
but it's power under restraint. Think of Jesus. Jesus, no one had a more powerful personality in the history of this world than Jesus Christ. And yet he was gentle. It took real strength to do what he did in submitting to the plan, the plan of the ages, to go to the cross. That's real strength. That's the gentleness of Christ. True strength will look like the gentleness of Christ. I'm afraid that somebody missed the memo on that somewhere along the way. You know, have you ever noticed today, like if you watch the news, and I'm not telling you should watch the news, but if you watch the news, some person from Congress or some governor or mayor of a city, an interviewer or a reporter will ask them a question. And if they ask a tough question, a rather searching question, a challenging kind of question, it's not very hard to see them get frustrated or elevated in their tone, to get angry, defensive, because the right kind of question is asked. They lose their gentleness. They're so distinguished in outward appearance, they look the part, they often on the campaign trail speak the part, but the second someone ribs them a little bit, well, they kind of lose control. And Paul was not that way in person. He was gentle like Christ. He was meek. But the Corinthians made a mistake of misinterpreting his meekness and his gentleness for weakness. And he understood that. He knew that they thought that about him. He says, end of verse 1, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold towards you. In other words, I know that this is what you're saying about me. That when I'm there, I'm timid and weak. But when I'm away and I'm writing, then I'm super tough. Essentially like my dog, who has a good loud bark behind the fence. But if she could see the Rottweiler on the other side of the fence, she would come running inside, I guarantee you, because she's a big chicken. But like a dog that has a loud bark at a distance, that's essentially what they were saying about the Apostle Paul. They're saying, hey, you're not going to be so tough when you come in person. He says, what, verse 2, I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold. I don't want to be harsh with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. I don't want to come there and be a tough guy or a disciplinarian, but I may have to if there are those among you who keep saying that we walk according to the flesh. What are they saying when they say that Paul walks according to the flesh? Well, it means that they don't walk according to the spirit. That's the opposite. So again, there, this is another way of questioning his authority. You don't walk according to the spirit. Your calling, your ministry, that's not of God. That's of yourself. Well, Paul answers that charge. He says, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are human beings. We have frailties. We have temptations. He says, we do not war according to the flesh. And he's not talking about, you know, instruments of war like swords and shields and spears and that kind of thing. He says when we fight, when we war, and there is a war, Paul himself said that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. So but when we war, we don't use the kinds of tools, the kinds of weapons that the people that are undermining us use. We don't rely on carnal weapons 
on human ingenuity. It's not about our physical appearance. It's not about our wardrobe. It's not about our eloquence. That's not the things that we rely on. We rely on God's spirit to do the work of God, to do the ministry of God, to fight the good fight of God because it is a spiritual battle. He's saying that's what they do. What these other false teachers do is they rely upon crowd dynamics and eloquence of speech and pop psychology. Even the way that they dress and got ready and looked, their style, all of those kinds of things. But Paul says, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, the walls of resistance that people put up against God, against the gospel, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, when Pastor Mike Hadley put the worship set together. He's been trying to put that new song in. We just sang the fourth song for a while. He put it in this morning for the first time, not knowing that the lyric that we sang comes straight from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We sing, every high thing must come down, every stronghold shall be broken. That's not common phraseology in the Bible. That's from this text right here. So he got a little spooked when he saw the text this morning after seeing that up there. It's how the Holy Spirit works sometimes. But the weapon of our warfare is mighty. It's for pulling down strongholds, he says, and casting down arguments. And it's for every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. High thing, high system, high person. A lot of people today exalting themselves against the knowledge of God as if they're as smart or smarter or no better than God. It is the height of presumption for a person to claim to know something about God that has not already been revealed to us in Scripture or can be inferred by reading of Scripture. And yet people try to do it all the time. Sharing with a few of you the other day, but I was flipping around the channel and saw a special on PBS. Deepak Chopra, The Future of God. Okay, a couple things. First of all, God is outside of space and time. Therefore, he has no past, present, or future. Secondly, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So anyone who purports to give you any information about the future of God, you could just change the channel right there. It is sad that somebody would pay for a ticket to come to a seminar where someone will say, well, you can read your Bible, but let me tell you what's really going to go on in the life of God over the next infinity years. It's very sad. The problem with a person like this is, if you've seen or heard Deepak Chopra, you know what the problem is. He's eloquent. He dresses the part. I'd love to have his wardrobe. He's a, you know, he does it. He gets the job done. He's, he's good in front of a crowd. A lot of people read his books. All of those kinds of things. And the mistake that some people make is thinking that worldly success means that God has placed a stamp of approval on a false teacher like that who doesn't know the future of God. That's carnal thinking to think, wow, he looks the part, he speaks the part, he's talking about God, he must be of God. That's carnal thinking. Paul here gives us the remedy for that kind of thinking. At the end of verse 5, he says that we ought to be bringing every thought 
into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now that is a statement to circle in your Bible or underline or highlight if you do that in your Bible. What a statement that we would, Lord, help me, that I would grow in my walk with God and my sensitivity to the Spirit, that every thought would be held captive by that influence, by His influence, by the intimacy between me and the Holy Spirit. Every thought. Not just that I'd be convicted when I blow it, but even before it happens. My thought life. I am not a helpless victim to my thoughts because the Holy Spirit is living inside of me. And if you're like me, you've noticed this. He catches you before you even go there. Even if it's a microsecond ahead of time. He catches you. And it can be held captive. He says we need to do that. And verse 6, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He's saying, hey, when we arrive, we're going to separate those who are obeying what we're saying here as it pertains to this, not judging people and not judging outward extremities instead of what's on the heart. He says, we're going to look at that and we're going to see who's obeying us and who's not. And we're going to deal with, you don't think we're going to be tough. You don't think we're going to be bold or harsh. We will when we get there and we will deal with these things. You can be sure. And we'll see who's obeying this and who's not obeying this. And he's going to wage war. He's prepared to wage war, not with the Corinthians, but on their behalf against those who would try and propagate this line of thinking that somehow the outward, the flesh, the carnal realities of life correspond to God's favor or blessing in a person's life. He says, verse 7, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? Well, of course they did. That's why he's asking that question. Really? Do you look at things according to outward appearance? It's a fair question for you and I. You can't say you don't. The Bible says you do. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. But man does look on the outward appearance. It is what we do. We all want to project a certain image. Some say, no, I don't. Okay, then you want to project the image that you don't want to project a certain image. That's still an image. Think about how many mirrors we have in our car and in our bathroom. We have some of those standing elongated mirrors so we can see the whole ensemble. How much time do we spend in our mirrors, you know, getting ready, looking to see how we look, make sure we look exactly the way we want to look in the morning. And I have a remedy for this as well. I suggested to first service, if you're struggling spending too much time in the mirror, Go over to the preschool and ask one of those kids to draw a picture of you. You'll get over it real quick. <laughs> they have a tendency to make like ears really, really big if you have big ears or whatever the case may be. They know how to articulate that point. But Paul is saying, look, seriously, are you going to judge me or any child of God or any servant of God on the basis of how I look or how I sound, how I speak, my authority, my spirituality based on those things? He says, if anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. Verse 8, for even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. I'm not going to be ashamed by claiming to have a position of authority over you all. Especially because I know that when 
I exercise authority in your life is for edification, to build you up, not for destruction, to tear you down. And anyone who is really, quote, Christ's should know that. And yet again, I'm afraid that there are too many that have not learned that. I would be really leery and I would warn all of you about spending too much time being influenced by people that spend most of their time tearing down the body of Christ instead of building up the body of Christ. I don't see that ministry anywhere in the Bible. You can find it on Facebook all over the place or on the internet. Self-proclaimed watchdogs that they think their job is to call out the church, so to speak. Now, don't get me wrong. I know some people have been hurt. I know people have been burnt. I know people have fallen. I know ministry leaders have fallen and people stumble because of that. But nobody is called to the ministry of evaluation of the church body and tearing down and destroying. Paul says, you want me to differentiate between me and those guys? I'm here to edify and that's how you know that. Even if what I say to you is a hard word at times, you know it's for your edification. It's for your growth as Christians, not to destroy you. Lest, verse 9, I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. That's what they were saying. You ever heard like a preacher on the radio? You heard their voice and you got a mental picture in your mind of what they looked like? You ever done that before? So if you don't already know, maybe some of you, if you're new to the scene or you just never even heard this before, maybe you have a mental picture of the Apostle Paul. He's probably tall and handsome and strong you know, chiseled features and all those kinds of things. That's, that's Paul. And he was bold and eloquent from the pulpit and all these kinds of things. And yet, history tells us, all we have is a second century document and church tradition that tells us that that was probably not the case about Paul. He was probably really short. They say he had a crooked nose. He had eyebrows that ran together at the top like it was one big eyebrow crawling across his forehead. His not-so-eloquent speech, he apparently had a whiny, high-pitched voice that was contemptible. He might have even spoken with a lisp. Probably not the way you would have first imagined it. And that's what these false teachers are trying to lead these people to think. Hey, that's a sign that that guy's not really called of God. I mean, look at us. Look at how we play the part and how we project ourselves. Look at how weak he is. Look how timid he is, his voice. He's so short. He's not that good looking. Well, verse 11, let such a person consider this. Someone who would say that. That what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So true. I mean, it's obviously not wise to commend or praise yourself. Although, I don't know. I see that on television all the time. It's a little confusing. Seems like every athlete and every celebrity is spending all their time commending themselves these days. 
It's not wise to commend yourself, but Paul here says it's not even wise to measure or compare yourself with another person either. Especially as it relates to outward appearance, which, by the way, is the only way you can measure yourself. Don't just think of outward appearance being the way someone looks. It's what you can see or what you can hear on the outward because we can't see the heart. And so the reality is that's what we look at. If you evaluate, if you measure yourself against another, it will always inevitably end one of two ways. It will either lead to you being puffed up and thinking you're better than someone else. Well, I'm more spiritual. I'm better looking. I dress better. I make more money. Whatever the case may be. Or it can actually pull you down. You can get discouraged if you compare yourself to someone else, thinking that you're supposed to be more like that. Again, creating an image in your mind of what the perfect Christian housewife or the perfect Christian dad or the perfect Christian college student is supposed to look like, and you can get discouraged if you don't think that you fit the part. That was one of the things that was definitely happening in Corinth. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 12, he had to correct them about their understanding of the gifts of the Spirit because they were arguing, they were squabbling over the gifts. They were fighting over the best gifts. They all wanted the position of prominence. So I have a better gift than you. I have prophecy or I have tongues or I have hospitality or interpretation of tongues. And they were dividing. It was causing a problem within the church body based upon those gifts. But God gave us those gifts that we would be different, that we would be a body, that someone would be a foot, someone would be a hand, someone would be a knee, someone would be a hip, so that we would complement each other and make up the body of Christ. You're never going to convince me that the whole church is supposed to be Mary or Martha. If everybody was Mary, nothing would get done around here. And if everybody was Martha when we started service, there'd be nobody in their seat to worship. There's always going to be a combination of people. And in this church body as well, you, you can't convince me. And again, I want to be careful. I'm not saying this to be funny. But you can't convince me that the whole church needs to be Mike Hadley. They're not, you're not allowed to laugh at that. <laughs> or better yet, Joe Shoup. You cannot convince me this church would function at all if everybody was me. That would be problematic in the highest degree. You say, no way. Okay, I'll tell you a story. A couple years ago, uh, there was a woman. She was coming into the sanctuary. This is probably before any of you were here, so safe that you didn't see it. But now I'm telling you, so it doesn't matter. And she was walking in, and she was bringing in her coffee and her donut. This was before we stopped allowing coffee and donuts in the sanctuary for those of you who have coffee in here right now. And right at the door, she fell. She was in a walker and she fell. She spilled her coffee, lost her donut. And there were several men around. One went to be at her side and help her make sure she was okay. One went to go get something to clean up the coffee and the donut. Another person went to get a refill of coffee and another donut, the same one that she had before. I stood there and watched. I froze. I didn't know what to do. And afterwards, I felt convicted about it. I felt bad. I really did. I'm like, why 
Am I not the one to pounce on that situation and jump to someone's side? And I'm not saying I'm not supposed to be, but listen to what I'm saying. Here's the irony. The irony that for the people that didn't see what had happened, some of them came that morning, heard me preach. I was convicted. Maybe I preached hypothetically on servanthood. And someone went home going, boy, that pastor, he really is a servant of God. When I was preaching out of conviction that I wasn't a servant, because I had seen this and I didn't do something when those others did. I'm not saying I shouldn't have jumped in. I'm saying some people are more given in their gifting to know, to react, to respond in a given situation. And I think that's wonderful. And that's why it's good that not everybody is whoever we think is the person that's supposed to be prominent within the body of Christ. I think the challenge sometimes with ourselves is that we have no way of really gauging our growth. And we want to know what we are as Christians. We want to grow. We want God to tell us or someone to tell us. But it's hard to measure those things. Measure your progress. If you're a business owner, you know how many sales you've made. You know what your cost of goods sold are. You know what your profit margin is. Right? You know all of those things if you're a business owner. But ministerially, personally, it's very hard to gauge. It's very hard to measure those kinds of things because so much of the growth that takes place in a Christian goes on underneath the surface, in a human heart. It's not something that we can measure, you and I, outwardly. God can, but maybe we can't in that same way. So be careful about measuring up about gauging yourself in comparison to someone else. You can always find someone better than you and you can always find someone worse than you. You might have to watch some reality TV tonight to find someone worse than you, but you can always find someone to compare yourself with to either make yourself feel bad or feel good. That is if you're measuring outwardly again. You say, well, you know, I give a lot more than they do. <laughs> And you, maybe you do, but maybe you give a lot more, but maybe you're not as good a steward of your finances. So you waste a lot more also. Who can know? You say, well, I serve a lot more than they do. Maybe, but maybe that's because they have more obligations at home with the family or at work in terms of their responsibilities. You say, well, I pray a lot more than she does. Well, maybe you have more to confess than she does. <laughs> and so you do spend more time in prayer along those lines. It's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves, judging by outward appearance, as he would say. That's what these phony super apostles were appealing to. Paul says, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. In other words, he's saying, look, we're the ones who came and first preached the gospel. So it's certainly within our sphere of influence to have authority over you. We're not trying to overreach. We're not extending ourselves. We're not trying to come in after someone else and tell you what the Bible says. We're the ones who led you to Christ. And I think within the context 
of our theme, it would be fair to point out that if the exhortation this morning is that we should not judge, that we should not look at the outward, that we should not project upon ourselves who or what someone else is onto our life and put that trip upon ourselves, I think this is a good word here in verses 13 and 14 also for us, that we're not overextending ourselves that we're not extending ourselves beyond our sphere of influence, whether it's personally or in the family or in your ministry. Because just as it is important, parable of the talents, right, to take what God has given you and use it for his glory, it's also important, I think, that you don't extend beyond what God has called you to do. I think that sometimes we think we have to always graduate in life. We gotta take on more and more and more responsibility. And if we don't do it, if it doesn't look like this or if it doesn't look like that, then maybe we're not doing it right. And I think we have to be careful about that kind of thinking. The rabbis, one pastor told that they had a parable back in the day and they believed this. It's just a parable, it's just a story, but they believed that on judgment day, on the day of reckoning, when you stand before God, God will never ask you why weren't you Abraham? Or how come you weren't Moses? But that God will ask you, why weren't you you? Why didn't you do with what I gave you to be? Now, I'm not talking about this whole phrase today, be true to yourself. That's a pointless statement. Because the second that you stop being true to yourself, you're being true to your new self. And so that basically means you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. I'm saying you take the things that God's given you, your gifting, your calling, and you say, I'm going to maximize what God has given me for his glory. I don't need to be like this person over here or this person or my brother or my sister. I don't need to be comparing myself. I need to be concerned about my sphere of influence, what God has placed in front of me ministerially and nothing else. Verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. You get the idea of what he's saying here is without saying it, is these teachers had come in and they have capitalized in Paul's absence on his sphere of influence, his labor. They're boasting in another man's accomplishment. Not just that, not just are they moving in, piggybacking on what Paul had built, not just are they doing that, but they're undermining Paul so that they can get the influence within that church too. And Paul's calling them out for that. He's calling them out on the carpet saying they're moving in beyond their sphere of influence, overextending themselves, capitalizing on the work that we've done, and they're in it for destruction to elevate themselves. They're not here to build up the body of Christ, taking credit for the work that they didn't do. But he who glories, verse 17, let him glory in the Lord, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Because how can we know? How can you and I know who the Lord does or does not commend? Because we only can see the outward. We cannot see the heart. The Bible says I can't even know my own heart. So how can I know your heart? let alone that I would judge you by what I see, which is all I have to go on, what I see or hear about you. But I have no idea what's going on inside of your heart. Ask Samuel about that, remember? After God had rejected Saul, 
God sent Samuel to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, to pick out Israel's second king. And Samuel walked in the house of Jesse, and the second he laid eyes on Eliab, he thought, well, this must be the Lord's anointed right here. And Jesse had eight sons. God gave Samuel eight guesses to get it right. And he got the first seven guesses wrong. He thought it was Eliab, and he went down the line, and then there was nobody else left in the house. He's like, don't you have any more sons? Oh, yeah, there's the redhead kid tending the sheep out there. You want to meet him? And that was King David, a man after God's own heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God knew the heart. He didn't reject those other brothers of David because they were like wicked or bad or incapable of any kind of leadership. No, he just knew David's heart. That was his guy. That was the one that God had chosen. The Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his outward appearance or his physical stature. I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks at the outward, the man looks at the outward appearance and the Lord looks at the heart. And so David is the one who gets the nod. And over and over again, we see in the scriptures that God, this is his pattern. This is his MO. One of the things I think I might repeat the most up here is the concept from Isaiah 55. That when God says, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As higher the heavens are above the earth, however high they are, that's how high his ways are above our ways. That's what he says. So when we look at a given situation, a challenge, a person, we come to a certain judgment that is totally limited. We need to rely upon what he shows us about that situation because his thoughts are as high above ours as the heavens are above the earth. His ways are that much higher above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. You think about Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, least likely candidates to birth an entire nation, were they not? They were in their 90s and she was barren. You think about Moses. Moses kept telling God, I'm not eloquent, right? My speech is slow. My tongue is slow. He kept saying that to God, but God used Moses. How about Rahab? She was the prostitute in Jericho that helped the Israelite spies. How about Samson? Had all kinds of problems with the flesh. All four of those characters chronicled in Hebrews chapter 11 in God's hall of faith because God will use a small man like Paul with a big heart or an otherwise weak woman with a strong faith. God will use that kind of a person because he doesn't do it the way we do it. And it's not just in regards to people so that he gets the glory so we know there's no formula so we realize our God is a mighty and powerful and strong God that can do it all on his own and doesn't need us but chooses to use us out of his grace he even mixes up his methods and his means, how he does things. Think about how in the book of Judges, he whittled down Gideon's army of 32,000 people to 300 people, 300 soldiers, to battle a Midianite army of 135,000. Just so he would get the glory and no one else would be able to say, well, those soldiers are fierce. 
You couldn't say that in that instance. You think about the walls of Jericho. You think about how they fell down. Was it this great battle plan that Joshua came up with? Was it that they brought in all these catapults or lit a fire outside the city to bring the smoke into the city? You know, to take away their air? Did they choke off their supply of food? That's what they did in, you know, ancient days. If you were behind a wall, a castle, they would choke off the supply lines so that as soon as food couldn't come to you anymore, now you'd have to come out and fight. Is that how God and the Israelite army took down mighty Jericho? No, it's not how it happened at all. Remember, they marched in circles around Jericho. Seven days they did that, silently. And on the seventh day, they did it seven times. And on the seventh time, after they had marched around the entire city, they shouted and they blew their horns and the walls instantly came crashing down. No human explanation possible for how that could have happened. Now, what was that principally communicating throughout the ages to God's people? What that was communicating is that God doesn't need to do things the way we think with sheer power or with sheer might or force. God doesn't use the strongest people, the biggest people, the most well-spoken people, the most educated, the most popular people. God uses whatever he chooses to use. And whatever he puts his hand upon and whatever he blesses and whom he calls, he will have success because he's God and he's bigger than all of these things. And so that's why what he's trying to communicate is be careful about making some kind of a judgment some kind of a rush to judgment in interpreting what someone is or what they can or can't do for God, or in thinking negatively or critically, it can hurt you. Remember, a big reason why Paul is writing this is to protect them from this kind of thinking, not just to defend himself. This kind of thinking can infect an entire church body. It can affect you very personally where you can be hurt because you judge someone, and because you judge someone, there could be someone in this room right now, and you've formed an opinion about them, and you can't see their heart, but it's based on outward appearance that you formed this opinion. That very opinion that you have of that person can interrupt your worship. It can infect your intimacy with God. It can change the way you receive from God. It really can. I'll tell you quickly, and then we'll close. I had, I have a, a longtime friend. I haven't seen him in years, but I've known him for 15 or so years. And a couple years ago, this is a true story. I'm leaving all the names out. A couple years ago, he came to this church after his wife had come a couple times and said, I think it's a good church. And they came in and then they left. And they left because they saw someone in our church body that was involved in some kind of a leadership position that had been in sin double-digit years, 10 or so years before. What a shame. Judging by what they know to have been true 10, 12 years ago, instead of what God is doing inside that person's heart, and they remained away from some potentially great fellowship with you all,
because of what they judged outwardly, not knowing the heart inwardly. And they remain that way, even to this day. And that can happen to you and to me. And here's the problem. The reason why that happens, in part, is because we're measuring ourselves by ourselves. We're looking at the container and not the contents. We're looking at what we know outwardly, not what we can't know inwardly. We ought not to ever measure ourselves by ourselves or among ourselves. If there's a measuring stick for you and I, we don't measure ourselves against man. We measure ourselves against the son of man. This is what Paul said. He said in Ephesians chapter 4, he said, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints of the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now that's the one I want to size myself up against today, is Christ and Christ alone. You're giving yourself a raw deal if you compare yourself to anyone else but him. So don't judge until the day, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Wait until the day where all of that will be revealed. But until then, don't judge. Make it between you and the Lord. And you'll be better off for it. It's a great lesson for us. Father, we thank you. We praise you this morning. Lord, and God, I'll, I'll confess that this is a thing that I have struggled with in my life and probably everybody here in their heart knows that to some degree and we're given to making a judgment or reading a book by its cover and not getting to know someone or coming to a quick decision of concerning who someone is instead of allowing you to reveal that to us or even being critical or being critical of ourselves because we don't think we measure up to them and we don't know them. We don't really know what's going on in their heart. It is kind of heartbreaking to think that there could be people here, Lord, in this room this morning that are critical of themselves because they don't measure up to what they think some person is. When in reality, the only person they ought to measure themselves by is your son, the Lord Jesus. And just try to be more like him. That's our prayer this morning, God, and as we go to our luncheon today and we hang out together as a church family I pray you'd remove all of those thoughts Lord if it be your will if you could do that for us take away any of that prejudice that we have remove all of those preconceived notions help us start afresh with each person here and let us model what discipleship looks like having love for one another as we gather right now. And we ask it in Jesus' name.